like a larger percentage of minorities of people who come over from all over the world. They encourage it. They encourage the diversity. There is just a phenomenal diversity, even amongst the professors Mm -hmm. of experience, of expertise, of understanding. And that, I think, is Windsor's strength. Welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project at the University of Windsor Law School. And we're back. We're back. But who are you? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm Julie McFarlane, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I, I should actually give everybody a warning that there's a tray of salted caramel brownies sitting on the table between Dana and I at the moment and we've had quite a few of them so we may be a little high just saying Uh, there's nothing funny about these brownies oh no no not that kind of high (laughs) just sugar high just a little like you know peppy yeah yeah but we're also peppy because we're very excited about this podcast today yes we are talking about Windsor Law specifically we always mention that the project the NSRLP is located at Windsor Law but we've got a special reason for wanting to do an episode on Windsor Law specifically because this year 2018 is the drum roll the 50th anniversary of the law school that's right which means if you can do math which I can't but <laughs> (laughs) I worked this out in advance, that Windsor Law started in 1968, which I'm sure for some of the people listening was well before they were born, but for me feels like kind of midlife. Um, (laughs) But just a few comments on, you know, what it was like back there. We have, as I'm sure most law schools have, a whole corridor. In fact, we have several corridors now with pictures of our graduating class each Mm -hmm. year. And when my daughters were younger, they used to love walking (laughs) along that corridor starting with 1968 because all the people in that photograph in 1968, 1969, 1970, I mean, you you had to get into the 70s until you started to see women. And anybody who wasn't white. Who wasn't white, yeah. I think in that first class, because I've walked down that hallway many times myself and looked at these pictures, I think in the first class there was one woman. Was one woman. Well, I've, I've kind of wondered before, like, what was it like to be that lady? Yes, yes. That must have been interesting. And, of course, you have the same pattern in the faculty in 1968. Mm. Amongst the first four faculty who were hired, there was, in fact, one woman, hmm. Professor Margaret Hughes. But most of the faculty in the 60s and the 70s and even into the early 80s were male. Now, of course, we have more than 50% of the students in the law school are female, more than 50% of our faculty are female, and we have considerably more diversity. That is more than none. Obviously, we you know, can do that better. But as I think the podcast today really illustrates, there's also things that haven't changed that much. And I just want to read something that the founding dean of Windsor Law said in 1968 about the law school, and he said this, people's law, not lawyer's law, will be emphasized when the University of Windsor Law School begins classes in September. Lawyers must realize they're public servants, not only servants of their clients. Law is a tool for the kind of society you wish to see develop. So those were the words of the founding dean in 1968, and they feel pretty relevant today, too. Yeah, that's wonderful. We decided to talk to three people for this episode, the first being the current dean of Windsor Law, Chris Waters. The second being Justice Lloyd Dean of the Ontario Court of Justice, who 
uh, graduated in 1990. And thirdly, a recent alumni, Parisa Jiwa, who graduated in 2016. So I decided that I wanted to ask each of our three guests some similar questions about what was special about Windsor Law School for them, what it had achieved looking back these 50 years, but also what new challenges lie ahead. And the first conversation is with Dean Christopher Waters, who's been Dean of the Law School since 2012. Hi, Chris. It's Julie. Thank you very much indeed for being willing to do the podcast with us on Windsor Law's 50th anniversary, a reason for lots of celebration and an opportunity to do some evaluation and a little bit of looking forward. So can I start this conversation by asking you, Chris, as the law school celebrates this 50th anniversary that you think have been particularly important in terms of legacy? Sure, Julie. Thanks very much for having me on the program as well. And happy anniversary to all the Winter Law grads. You know, I I could point to specific moments in time, but I I think actually when looking back on our 50 years legacy, what's even more interesting than specific launches of programs and so on are the ethos and values of the Mm. law school, which I think have actually changed. Of course, they've evolved in how we apply them, but I think that the the, the values themselves haven't actually changed all that much. And the first that I would point to is sort of community engagement. From the very beginning, many of our students came from outside of Windsor, from the GTA in particular, but also from the very beginning, they've been involved in the Windsor community. They've really grappled with and embraced the city. Now, the community engagement hasn't only taken place in, in, in Windsor through our, our legal clinics, for example. We have, as you know, two anti-poverty clinics, but also through taking law on the road, so to speak, quite literally in the mid-70s when the law school, some, some professors and some students you know, had something called the law caravan, and it was a, a VW oh, bus, yes, I recall. I've heard of this. Yeah. yeah. And there's some fantastic pictures as I go through the archives in, in preparation for our 50th. Some fantastic pictures of this bus driving around northern Ontario and giving out legal information and legal literature. Now, we've, we've evolved in many ways since then to a more client-centered type approach, but the idea that, that the law is not something that's supposed to happen just in the law school or in the courts right. Is, right. Is, is a very early feature of the law school. And of course, you know, the community engagement continues today with your fantastic uh, National Self-Represented Litigants Project, amongst other things. I would say another value that's super important to the law school and has been for a long time is is the people-centeredness of the law school. And, and, And by that, I mean, A, we teach our students that their clients should be at the center of what it is they're doing. You know, I, I frankly think, you know, when you think about the number of complaints the Law Society receives about, you know, failure, simple things like the failure to return phone calls. People-centeredness is, is at the root of proper client service, and that's the sort of value to try and inculcate the students. Those are wonderful highlights. Hmm. What do you think are the unique contributions Windsor Law can make to modernizing legal education in Canada and maybe perhaps, you know, even by extension, the legal profession itself? Mm -hmm. Sure. I think it's a very, very fair question and a really important question. 
I guess I want to start, though, by saying I think that old-fashioned values of critical thinking, which have always been stressed in legal education, ever go out of style. Uh, and so I think that the challenge is to take the critical thinking that we've always prided law schools on, and I think which we've done a really good job of in Canada, and to apply those in times of, of, of social of social change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, for example, let me, let me just take one example. We have an LTech lab which looks at law and technology, people working on artificial yeah. intelligence, intellectual property issues across the border for uh, tech startups and so on. And we're thinking through the access to justice issues. We're thinking through what automation might mean for, for example, persons with disability and automated okay. vehicles, what that might mean for mobility, enhanced accessibility. But we're still doing it through a, a critical thinking lens, through a lens of access to justice. And, and so it's, again, sort of a situation of when I say, Sure, lots of things have changed. We no longer take a, a VW bus up to northern Ontario. <laughs> but, but the value of being community engaged, the values of access to justice, and the values of critical thinking, I think those are still very much very much in style. And, you know, just, just one other thought, Chris, I'd, I'd love your reaction to it as I'm listening to you. I mean, it seems to me that as well a big part of what Winter has been able to do and hopefully Winter Law will do into the future is to produce graduates who are not afraid of change. I mean, one of the things that the legal profession, I think, struggles with on on a cultural level, on a systemic level, is change. I mean, change is hard. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that I'm hearing in what you're saying is that part of our ethos is to prepare students to embrace change, to be excited about change, to think through change, and not to be afraid of it. Would you say that was right? Yeah, rethinking about how we must indigenize the law curriculum. And I'm happy to say that from September, Indigenous Legal Traditions will be a mandatory first-year course. So students won't get in past their first year of law school thinking, you know, there's two legal traditions in Canada, common law and civil law. Right. You know, there's also a whole basket of Indigenous Traditions. There's a very important one. Yeah, and that's, that's a wonderful note on which to, to end our looking forward segment here. So thank you very much. So our second conversation on this theme of Windsor Law's 50th anniversary is Justice Lloyd Dean. Yes, I can say this on the podcast because I've said it publicly many times previously. One of my all-time favorite students, Lloyd, was actually in my very first class when I first came to Windsor from the UK. And I remember Lloyd was in my class and he told me that he didn't really want to be in law school because he wanted to play professional football, but that (laughs) didn't figure out for him. So he is now a judge of the Ontario Court of Justice and he's had an amazing career on his way there. And I'm going to be talking to him about some of those highlights and how Windsor motivated him. Hey, Julie. Permission to call you Lloyd throughout the phone call, Your Honor. Absolutely. Yeah, of course, of course. You don't need permission. You, of course, were in my very first class at Windsor Law many, many years ago. It was January 1990, and I remember being... Fairly impressed by a lot of things about Windsor, including the amount of snow. I'd never seen that amount of snow before. But I was also very struck by your personal story. You were very clear about the fact that you were an athlete, a football player, and that that was your major reason to be at law school. And at the same time, you were 
a member of this storied family that included the first African-Canadian lawyer to be appointed King's Counsel in the Commonwealth. So you sort of came with this certain amount of, you know, an aura of, um, of difference about you. And then after you graduated, you created a niche for yourself for many years, teaching high school half-time and working as a crown the other half of the time. And I have never known anybody before since or expect to who's done that. So if this might be purely about you and your personal motivations and what draws you. But I'm curious, is there anything about your education at the law school that gave you kind of permission to pursue that career route rather than a more traditional one? Well, I, I wouldn't say that I pursued that uh, career route as much as it... Um, it found you. Yeah, found me and fell into place. But what happened, though, at Windsor Law that I think contributed to uh, it finding me was really the, the teachers, the professors, mm. and also the administrators. I remember every single one of their names to this <laughs> because... I was always in awe of how personable they were and how much they encouraged me to not change. Oh, that's great to hear. There were at least four or five that said those exact words. Do not ever change. This profession needs someone like you in it. Yes. And you realize that from your own experience, or has been told this from other students along the way, is that there's a lot of pressure in law school to change and become yeah. Whatever it is, the legal profession just from being in it tries to tries to make you become. So it was uh, along the way when I had some trials, figuring out what I was going to do after football did not well, work out for me. Mm. And I had not even applied for an articling position in my second or third year law school. And then realizing that football was not going to work out for me. Now, mm. now what was I going to do? And it was because of the relationships I had with the professors and uh, administrators where I was able to talk to several of them and find an articling position first off. And then along the way, they continued to give me um, their thoughts and their, uh, through their experiences, their wisdom, and everything started to fall into place. And, of course, I continued to be who I was when I first entered law school. And, uh, you know, a lot of that credit has to go to the professors and the administrators that were there at the time. And, of course, my own parents being present in my life still and uh, of the same view as my professors. Mm. That was the unique thing about my life is that along the way, the professors, both an undergraduate as well as in law school, and also my coaching at Windsor, through football, all of them had the same message. It was a consistent message as my parents had raised me. So it was really uh, an environment at the University of Windsor throughout my education that contributed to who I am today and helped me, uh, you know, when that career path that found me was there, I was able to take advantage of it. And, and to feel confident that that was the right thing to do. I mean, I think yours is an amazing story. And I wonder if, you know, now, of course, you are in the place of being a mentor. What kind of advice would you give to our current Winter Law students who are trying to figure out how they can make a difference? Because as you know, Lloyd, a lot of them come to law school 
full of a lot of, you know, very strong social justice motivation and a real desire to make a difference. And somehow they get burdened down with with debt and with the pressure that you were describing to be in a very competitive environment. So what would you say to them? One, one thing when I look back uh, on on my early years, to not be hasty in your decisions. Part of my decision-making process, I think I made one hasty decision in my early career, but it turned out to be okay. It turned out to work out okay and for the better, but it, and it was when I, when I left a very family-oriented law firm and got sucked into, when I say that, I should say tempted and bit the apples, power, money, and status from another high, uh, very prominent lawyer in the city. Mm. And I jumped at it only to become unhappy in a matter of 12 months and, and quit the legal profession. But that experience, of course, now has allows me to offer the advice that I'm about to offer, which is to not to be hasty in your decision-making, but to wait things out and, and make sure that yeah. you are, are making the right decision for who you are. When you realize you are not happy, it's time to think about changing. And for me, it, it, what I have learned and the advice I would give students is that if you're not doing it for the right reasons, you are ultimately going to become unhappy. The only right reason to do something is to do it to help others, to do it to make a good difference in someone else's life or the community as a whole, and take on a selfless nature. That is when your career, in fact your life, becomes rewarding, satisfying, and happy. So that's the advice I would give the young lawyers is to resist the temptation to pursue the, the power, money, and status and instead look at the traditional calling of law, which is to help others, to be a counsel. Do you ever hear that word anymore, yes. a counselor? It's to be a counsel and to help others achieve, you know, whatever it is that they are hoping to achieve through your legal expertise or experience. Well, I want to just connect that finally, Lloyd, to a bigger issue, which is your own commitment, not only I know to your clients and now to the people that you see in your courtroom, but also to this community. Uh, you said, you know, you feel that that's a really important part of what keeps your life meaningful and, and, and fulfilled. You know, we see most of our Windsor Law grads go to the big city, of course, you know this. They leave us for the big smoke. And, you know, some of them are going back to family in those cities. But I often wonder how we could encourage some of our Windsor grads to think about staying and embedding themselves in this community. And you and I are actually neighbors in the county community. And this is a pretty special place. So, you know, I'm sure you could have gone off to the big smoke at some point, but you didn't. You stayed here. So what kept you here? Yeah, so I had uh, I had a few opportunities, and they were they were um, big opportunities to leave and go to the uh, GTA practice law, and uh, ultimately, and I was very tempted to go. But my sister is uh, a nurse in the Toronto area, and she's four years older than I am, and she told me I did not want to come to GTA. <laughs> she 
she felt that it was she had learned through her own experience that a small community was a better community to have a life to mm-hmm. uh, so so that was one of the reasons why I didn't go and of course being from here I knew what this area had to offer, but as, yeah. a, young, as a young man, you're, you, you know, sometimes you you want more, you don't, than what is right in front of you. For some reason, you just think that there's, there's more out there. Yeah. But, but what I've learned, of course, as I've gotten older, is that what a huge benefit we have living here in the Windsor area and the surrounding small communities. I mean, they're so uh, peaceful and restful and comfortable yeah. to live in and to raise a family in. And then you are a car ride. Yeah. The major cities like Toronto, Chicago, and, of course, Detroit, so close that Detroit has everything you would want in a major city, all different areas of arts and culture. It's just... And so we're, we're, we're very lucky here. So I, I can't imagine ever leaving here now. To me, I always tell the students... If you spend a year here, like if you stay from September to September, yeah. you are going to get hooked <laughs> uh, because you, the, the summertime and the springtime and the fall time, it's great. Sometimes the students come in the fall, see just a small part of what this, this place, this area has to offer for the warm months, and then they leave come, you know, uh, the beginning of the April. The spring, yeah. yeah. Well, I certainly agree. I thank you very much, Lloyd, for this time today. I appreciate it. Been a pleasure, Julie. So our final conversation on the topic of Windsor Law School is with Parisa Jiwa. So Parisa is someone who I think really epitomizes the new generation of Windsor Law graduates. Uh, Parisa graduated in 2016. She's been called to the Bar of Alberta, and she practices in Calgary. And she has set up a unique practice called Calgary Legal Coaching. So I'm going to talk to Parisa about how she got inspiration from Windsor Law, and we're going to do a subsequent podcast with Parisa that will look more at her business model. But for today, we're just going to hear about how she fared at Windsor Law. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about being a recent graduate of Windsor Law. Because yeah, when I was thinking about somebody that we could include in this 50th anniversary podcast who really exemplified some of the values that Windsor Law prides itself on as the Access to Justice Law School, you were an obvious choice. So could I begin, Parisa, by asking you, could you talk about maybe the most important lesson or even a couple of lessons that you learned at Windsor about access to justice, which has had an impact now on the very special way you're mapping out your legal career? I think the most important lesson I learned at law school was that the sooner you acknowledge your need for help, the better things will be and the more effective you will be as a student and as a lawyer. Nobody knows everything. And I think that I went in with a with an attitude that, you know, I was self-reliant, that I got good grades, but I did have trip-ups. And it was really nice that when I did reach out for help, that I did receive it. 
And that has followed through in my practice. I no longer will stare at a problem hours on end because I know that's just wasting my time when there are so many resources, so many people available who know the answer. Mm. That has made me more confident. It has increased my ability to move forward in my practice. And it's not just on me. It's on everybody who's around me. Everyone wants to see me succeed. Well, it's really interesting that you have chosen, Parisa, to take your career in the direction that you have. And we're going to do an extended conversation with you about that because I think that the nuts and bolts of what you're doing as a legal coach with people who are primarily self-represented is extremely interesting to our audience and probably especially to new graduates. So today, could you say a little bit more about what Windsor Law could do, do you think, going forward to build on this tradition of access to justice to do better at equipping people like you when they graduate to work with communities who cannot afford full representation? So I'm going to start with what's strong and not what's wrong. And that would be is Windsor permit like a larger percentage of minorities of People who come over from all over the world, they encourage it. They encourage the diversity. There is just a phenomenal diversity, even amongst the professors Mm -hmm. of experience, of expertise, of understanding. And that, I think, is Windsor's strength. The second thing that Windsor is strong for is their camaraderie. The students are encouraged right from the get-go to lean on each other. And they do that right from the orientation. They, uh, everyone's kept together in the first year. Everyone kind of gets to know each other. Everyone gets to know each other's strengths. Yes, there's competition, but there is also a lot, a lot of collaboration that Windsor has always, always encouraged. Hmm. And the third thing that's strong is I think the professors, the expertise levels that they have in different areas. Uh, there are so many professors that stand out to me right now. So many that I, that I were was able to have conversations with yes. to understand access to justice in different areas of the law. It's not relegated to just the access to justice class. Every single professor was able to draw out access to justice in each and every area of the law. However, my struggle was that I never got the best grades. I never got the best grades for a variety of reasons and for a variety of challenges that I was facing and I felt shut out because mm-hmm. I wasn't getting the best grades. I couldn't get the moots. I couldn't get into the moots because mm-hmm. I wasn't getting into the moots. I wasn't being, I wasn't able to, you know, really show off my OCIs, you know, those, that, that kind right. of hindrance. They're such it's all connected. Yes. on grades. Law school is very competitive. You get a range of students who have never seen a lawyer, incredibly bright students, People who are from, like, you know, the first generation of students that are ever going to university in the first place. And then you get the students who have had years and years and generations and generations of academic successes Mm -hmm. and who come with uh, almost uh, a legal background in their family. And it was evident who those people were. And it was evident that they were the ones that were going to succeed because they had not only the support, but they had also grown up in an environment where 
they talked about the law, that, you know, they were encouraged to think critically, whereas all of those pieces were new to me. So naturally, it takes right. time to grow a skill. Less emphasis on grades, more emphasis on someone's desire to improve their own life paths. I think that career counselors could work closer with students to find them more options, more diverse yes. uh, extracurriculurs. The thing that one of the challenges here is that we need to think of a way not to replicate the existing profession, that we need to make not only admission into law school, which, as you say, I think Windsor does a, a remarkable job of admitting a really diverse group of people, but we need mm -hmm. to make sure that the people who advance are also a diverse group of people and not people who reflect some of the privileges of status quo. Very well said. Thank you. <laughs> well, Parisa, that is extremely important and I think a good note on which to end this because we always know we can do better. And I just want to thank you so much for being prepared to participate in this. And I am looking forward very much to talking to you again when we will run a podcast on your business model for your access to justice practice. I think those are three really great conversations about the history of Windsor Law and where it might be going in the future as well. Striking similarities amongst them as well. Yes. And we'll kind of talk about this, about what kind of ties these together. But to begin with, one of my favorite things in your conversation with Chris was his talking about the law caravan oh, from yes. the 70s. They just love the idea of these students and faculty driving around the country in a VW bus, <laughs> dispensing right. law to yes. the people. Yes, and so very great. much looking at that as a public legal education yeah. project. I think it was... Uh, it, it, it was very symbolic, I think, that Windsor in the, in the 1970s, the early 1970s, was doing something like that. And, you know, in many ways, it is a forebode of Windsor's co commitment to trying to always, um, you know, look outwards as well as inwards. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to see that as Windsor increasingly steps up to really promote the integration of Indigenous legal traditions into the curriculum mm -hmm. and with the hiring of Indigenous faculty, which is going to be the topic of a future podcast. Again, it's this kind of looking out and not just looking in approach. Right, right. And again, on that theme, um, my favorite thing that I learned in the course of your conversation with Lloyd was, I cannot believe he taught high school at the same time <laughs> as working as a Crown Council. That's incredible. Yeah. Who else, who else does that? I don't, I, just, I don't know anyone who's ever done that. And I just, I love the idea <laughs> that he's got these two options and he couldn't decide. And right. to him, it's just as important and valuable and interesting to teach high school as it is to be like a big, important Crown. Crown Council. Yeah. I remember, you know, I, I, I stayed in touch with Lloyd ever since he's graduated. He's a good friend mm. and he couldn't decide. <laughs> he couldn't decide. And, you know, it makes you think, doesn't it? What if lawyers were more normally, and I don't know anyone else who's done this other than Lloyd, um, likely to have a half-time legal practice and a half-time something else career. Mm. I mean, you could think of some amazing combinations. Half-time lawyer, half-time social worker, half-time mm -hmm. lawyer, half-time 
counselor or therapist. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some pretty interesting combinations and possibilities here. Yeah. Half-time lawyer, half-time advocates in a not-for-profit organization. But we never imagine that mm. that's what we can do. And I think what Lloyd really epitomizes is this idea that you can actually do what you want. Mm. You don't have to be constrained by all the, you know, shoulds and oughts. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, Parisa is, a, is another great example, example of yeah. that. But one of the things, and I think, you know, it's important for us to talk about this, is Parisa's kind of criticism of law school. And I think this is really, you know, it's not just at Windsor Law, I'm sure, that this is an issue. But her discussion of kind of the way privilege acts in law school Mm. and the idea that, you know, you do have a lot of people who are coming to law school from a kind of legacy, a family legacy, and, you know, are used to legal concepts and have kind of been at least somewhat involved or aware of the world of law and the language of and law. easier access to the networking exactly. possibilities. Yeah. Um, and so it just, it makes a great deal of sense that they would have kind of a leg up in law school yeah. and that people who are coming to this without that kind of background, you know, might find it a little more challenging to kind of get up to speed and get comfortable and get used to the language and the customs and all of those things. And I mean, I think Parisa's story is so interesting because in some ways she is a, a, a good reflection of what happens when, as Windsor has tried to through its admissions policy over the years, really broaden the demographics mm. of who's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it, this isn't just middle and upper class people whose parents are already lawyers. Mm-hmm. And it's not just white people, Mm -hmm. it's not just men. Mm -hmm. I mean, even Lloyd came with some privilege because he's actually descended from one of the very first Mm African-Canadian lawyers. So Pariso is explaining what it's like to come with none of that Mm -hmm. context whatsoever. And I think saying that for people like her, they may take a little longer to adjust. They may need a little bit more time to really kind of get their feet, find their feet in law school. And that that's part of moving forward, what we need to be conscious of, if we're really going to do a service to people who are coming from a place where this is all a very new world for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Ultimately, though, I think what, for me, really came through in all of these conversations and what ties all of these people together and and so many of the other people that we're familiar with, faculty and, and students, former and current, at Windsor Law, is that Windsor Law has, from the beginning and continues to do so, fosters kind of an attitude of people being willing to think outside the box and in their careers try things that are a little different from um, the kind of common career path for lawyers. And I think that's fantastic. I, I think I think that Parisa and Lloyd, I hope they will serve as a little bit of an inspiration to other students, not just at Windsor, but other law schools, because there is a lot of pressure on our students, and the same at Windsor, to um, actually think inside the box Mm. and to pay off that student loan as fast as possible by doing the safest and most traditional legal work you can think of. Mm -hmm. And I think that that pressure, many students will tell you, is very much there. But here are two people who are really examples of taking very literally what Windsor embraces, which is, you know, be ready for change, be ready to do something different, look outwards, just like Mm -hmm. that beat up VW Mm -hmm. did in the 1970s, and look outwards and think about what you want. And I hope that they will be inspirations for people listening. In other news, 
There's a lot that's happened in the world of access to justice since our past season of jumping off the ivory tower. Since we're talking about Windsor Law's 50th anniversary, it's fitting that we start off with a report on the future of the legal industry. You might recall that the NSRLP attended an Access to Justice conference last fall, hosted by the Institute for the Advancement of the American Legal System. The conference focused on how to implement an unbundled legal services model, and was attended by stakeholders from 26 U.S. states, Washington, D.C., and Canada. NSRLP's own Dana Cornwall presented about Windsor Law's SRL coaching class. There were a lot of great takeaways on how the legal industry has changed and will continue to change. This conference resulted in a report which was released this past week. The report contains some of the best practices for unbundled services, and it's an excellent resource for access to justice advocates and legal scholars alike. We're glad to have participated, and we're looking forward to engaging in future dialogue. You can find a link to the full report on our website. Next up, continuing the topic of unbundled legal services, we're pleased to hear that the Canadian Institute for Law and the Family also recently published its report on unbundling. Specifically, the report looks at the level of satisfaction lawyers and clients have had with Alberta's Limited Legal Services Project. Data was collected between April 2017 and June 2018. The full list of conclusions begins on page 63 of the report and includes points like Clients feel that receiving unbundled legal services improves their ability to resolve their legal problem. Clients obtaining unbundled services are satisfied with the cost and speed of delivery of those services that lawyers are satisfied providing unbundled services, and that they intend to continue offering unbundled services in the future. Due to the positive outcomes, a nonprofit society will take over the project website, and there will be a pool of lawyers providing unbundled services after the end of the project. Lastly, the NSRLP is excited to remind all our listeners that we're in the process of updating our primers to make them more accessible to a wider audience. Thanks to a grant from the Canadian Bar Association Law for the Future Fund, we're kicking our primers up a notch. As part of this process, we're also showcasing weekly graphics in a series we've dubbed SRL Resource of the Week. If you haven't checked out our infographics for our primer Coping with the Courtroom, you can find those in our designated album of infographics on our Facebook page, or search for the hashtag SRL Resource of the Week on Facebook or Twitter. Stay tuned for more infographics and plain language updates to our primers. We'll be updating the primers in addition to all the other exciting things in the pipeline, including our case law database reports, our upcoming dialogue event, and of course, this podcast. <laughs>